So I did a little bit of reading about Hebrews this week. We're going to talk about that a little. And it turns out that we do know who the author of Hebrews was, Dave. It's the same one who wrote a lot of the um, punchy sayings on the internet and on bumper stickers. Anonymous. <laughs> it was Anonymous that wrote uh, Hebrews, turns out. Very, very prolific author. <laughs> so, so this morning we're going to finish um, the series that Brian set out for us looking at um, First and Second Samuel. And so um, if you recall, First and Second Samuel, the series has gone from the birth of Samuel to today we're going to talk about David becoming king over all of Israel. So we're, uh, basically it's about 100 years, I guess, something like that. So what we could do is we could spend a lot of time talking about the history of Israel. Like, for example, last week when I was downstairs with the kids, Lexa was there. I said, hey, Lexa, because we watched David and Goliath on the Superbook. I said, how old do you think Saul was when David, is it slew or slayed? Whichever. When he killed Goliath, how old do you think Saul was? What do you guys think? Anybody have an idea how old Saul was when David killed Goliath? Anybody want to guess? He was about 50 years old. So it's funny because in our Bible, um, the authors, whether it's anonymous or um, whoever wrote it, they don't always like, pay as much attention as we do to chronology. So within First and Second Samuel, like David was literally about 15 or 16 when he slew Goliath, and Saul was about 50. And you figure that out because what you do is you say, the Bible tells us that uh, Saul was 30 when he became king, and he reigned for 42 years. David was 30 when he became king, and he reigned for 40 years. So you do all the math, and you figure out that, yeah, I can see why a 50-year-old might be a little bit annoyed with, a, with an upshot 16-year-old who just killed the giant. And so some of that makes sense. So we could do that, but we're not. Um, we could talk about the founding of Jerusalem, which is in our um, scripture text for this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 5. We could talk about that because Jerusalem has been uh, a seat of trouble <laughs> since, since it was founded. I mean, and today it is the center of a lot of, in case you guys don't read the press, um, it's the center of a lot of things that go on. We could talk about that. And in, in fact, it's an eternal city, you know, because the Bible says that in the end, you know, the heavenly the city will come down. Jerusalem will come down. Um, from heaven. We could talk about that, um, but we're not going to do that either. Uh, we could compare Saul and David as kings. In fact, up until, I don't know, Tuesday this week, I thought we were going to do that, but then no, that's not what we're going to do either because it got kind of stale. And we're not going to do whatever you guys did last night because Tom and Darlene said that, you know, talking about the waterway and how they took over the city. And so what I told them and what I'll tell you is um, this morning we're going to start in 2 Samuel chapter 5, but where we're going to end up is with Jesus. Now Tom said, Jesus is not in 2 Samuel chapter 5, but watch, <laughs> he is. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at uh, 2 Samuel Chapter 5, if I can get the... Ah, here it is. We're going to read 2 Samuel chapter 5, and then we're going to look at how we see Jesus in David. Let's do that together. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. Oh, yeah, i got to keep looking. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here. Okay, I got to pause here because 
This makes no sense to me, and it makes no sense to any of the commentators what this next part means, but I am quite sure it made a lot of sense to the people back then. It was probably, you know, how sometimes we have things now where it only makes sense for the 30 or 40 years when it's cool or in. There must have been something to this, but they say, you will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They thought, David cannot get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. On that day, David had, David had said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemies. That is why they say the blind and lame, I'm telling you, it had, I'm sure this meant a lot, but it means nothing to me. The blind and lame will not enter the palace. David then took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from the terraces inward. And he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. So what I want to do this morning is relate how this picture of David gives us insight into our Lord Jesus Christ. Follow me here. First, I want you to see in verse 1, when all of Israel came to David, now remember, you probably don't remember, I, just, I remember because I read all this this week, but here's the basic idea. Um, by the end of 1 Samuel, Saul dies in battle. Saul and Jonathan die in battle. I think, um, didn't Brian preach on this last week? I missed it because I was downstairs. But Brian preached on this last week. Um, Saul and Jonathan die in battle. David does a lament. Um, the, the kingdom is split. Judah, the tribe that David was born into, they take him as king. Everybody else takes one of Saul's sons, Ishbosheth. Now, if you think it's pronounced differently, that's fine. I'm going to call him Ishbosheth. We can agree to disagree. Ishbosheth rules for the six or seven years, and there's war. There's battle between David's people and Ishbosheth's people. They go back and forth. Finally, um, that guy is killed, and here is where all the tribes of Israel come to David at Hebron, where he was ruling Judah. And they decide to, to, to bring it back together. And the first thing I want you to notice is they say to him, we are your own flesh and blood. That's very important. Because one of the things that I talked about a few weeks ago, um, for an ideal king of Israel, and God always intended, if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 17, God always intended that once his people came out of Egypt, once they became a people, they would have a king. But they would have a certain kind of king. The king wouldn't be someone who was above them or beyond them or outside them, who just taxed them, who just used them, who just for his own glory. The king should be one of them. The king, they had to identify with the king, and more importantly, the king had to identify with them. And so the people come to David and they say, hey, we are your own flesh and blood. They recognized him. They knew him. They knew his background as a, as a shepherd boy. They knew what he had done with Goliath. They knew what he had done um, fighting the battles with Saul. He was their person. They could identify with him, and more importantly, he identified with them. Verse 2. In the past, while Saul was king of Rush, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become the ruler. Again, if you want to read some interesting history, you should read through First and Second Samuel. 2 Samuel to about um, chapter 5 for um, the whole David and Saul thing. But the idea is, if you recall the story at all, um, after David slew Goliath, um, he became uh, part of the king's court. He became part of Saul's um, 
royal court. He led Israel into battle. In fact, he was so successful, it annoyed Saul. Now, most people, most kings, if their um, commanders are doing well and killing a lot of people, back in those days, of course, don't want to get bloody here, um, that was a good thing. But for Saul, the fact that David was having such great success annoyed him. And f- I don't remember the story about um, the, the women singing. Saul has killed his, was it thousands? And David has killed his tens of thousands. I mean, it just drove the king nuts, made him crazy, literally. If you read uh, 1 Samuel, you'll see it literally um, made him crazy. So the people recognized that David was their captain. David was the one who led them out and brought them back in. David was the one who was their shepherd, who should, according to the anointing by Samuel, who should become the true king of Israel. So they recognized him, they identified with him, he identified with them, they realized, they remembered that he had led them out and brought them back in, that he was their shepherd. And then in verse 7, it says, Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion. So here was the idea. I don't know what blind and lame stuff was about, but the idea is that fortress was so secure that the Jebusites thought there was no way in the world that David and his army, like David, you and whose army is going to come take this city? They figured there was no way. They even said the blind and lame, the weakest among us, can hold you off. That's the idea. We could send anybody out to the wall, and David, you are not getting in. And nevertheless, despite that, David captured the fortress of Zion, which became the city of David, which, like I said before, is an eternal um, city. So the idea is David fought and won an impossible battle for his people to establish a place, and this is what it did for Israel. It wasn't Judah. It wasn't the northern kingdoms. Jerusalem became the central, the focus of Israel. He built the temple there. Or Solomon built it. He started to build. He, he brought the ark. Everything came together in Jerusalem. For the sake of the people, David won an impossible battle. All of that is to say, and if you want to hear more about David, this is the last thing I have to say about it. You can do it out in the hallway. All of it is to say that David was the true king of God's people, as described in Deuteronomy chapter 17. God had no problem, unlike with Saul. If you remember from the very beginning, Saul was, okay, God said, if that's what you want, you can have him. He's taller than everybody, he's stronger than everybody, but evidently he was dumb as a rock. (laughs) You can have him. You want him, you got him. David was a different kind of king. David was a true king. He identified with his people, he led them out, he shepherded them, and he won an impossible battle for them. So he was a true king of God's people. So now, Tom, you ready? What does all that have to do with Jesus? What does that have to do with Jesus? Now, at the, at the, at the risk of you know, boring you or whatever, I'm going to reread Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. Dave did a great job. This is just for uh, emphasis. So listen with me again to Hebrews chapter 2, verses uh, 10 through 18. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers 
In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. So I'll pause here to tell you, if you want to do some more reading on this, it is awesome. Because some of this is quoting from Psalm 22, which the the early church recognized right away because those were the words that Jesus used on the cross when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So there's all kinds of ways this weaves together, um, but I'm just going to go past that for for, uh, something else. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Okay, let's walk back through this and see how this parallels with what we just read about David being the true king of Israel. And we'll start in verse 14, not in verse 10. I'm not big on chronology here. (laughs) It's all right. You'll be okay. First point is, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Here's the idea. A true king has to identify and be identified with his people. God, to be our king, to be our savior, to be our God, did not stay far away up on Mount Olympus and proclaim through thunder or, or with fire. Um, he did not stand far back and tell us, here's what you should do. I'm telling you right now. No. What he did was he became one of us. He took on flesh. He likewise partook of the same things. He became one of us. Bless you. He became one of us so that as one of us, he could identify with us. And more importantly, we could identify with him. He is not someone who's unfamiliar with the toil and the trouble. So one of the commentators mentioned this, and I, and I feel a little embarrassed saying it, but when it talks about Jesus suffering from temptation, the reason why he suffered more than we do with temptation, do you know why that is? Because he resisted it all the way through. Just maybe it's me, but I don't suffer all the way through all temptations. About a third of the way, sometimes even less than, I give in. So I stop suffering temptation and I, I, I don't resist anymore. But Jesus, because he did not sin, he knew the full extent of the suffering involved in living on this planet with the, the limitations, with the, the finiteness of being hungry, being tired, um, being weary, being annoyed, being, I mean, all the things that bother us, all the things that make us less than who we think we are on our best day, he experienced all those things to the fullest because oftentimes, and maybe it's just me, no amens, when I get tired or when I get hungry, I'm not the best person that I think I am. I, you know, I'm, 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 I'm familiar to myself. <laughs> no one else is that way? Okay, fine. So maybe, maybe, maybe you guys do better than I do when it comes to those kind of things. But the point is, our, our king, 
our true king, suffered in the same way. He took on blood and flesh to identify with us. He became one of us. Now we go back to verse 10. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, Dave read pioneer. This says, the word founder is actually a Greek word. It's the only Greek you're going to get today. It's a Greek word, which actually means something like captain or pathfinder. The, the word is, uh, where is it? Archegos, A-R-C-H-E-G-O-S. I don't know how to pronounce it. No one does. Archegos. Basically, it means um, one who is out in front. You know, we go back to 2 Samuel, where it talked about how, David, you were the one who led us out and brought us back. Jesus is the one who has gone before us to make a way. He has gone into death and came back. This is why we're Christian. I don't know about you guys, but this whole religion thing is sometimes as a drag. There are things that, you know, inside you really want to do, but you feel like, well, I really shouldn't. Why shouldn't I do that? Um, and if it wasn't for the fact, if it wasn't for the, at least I believe it, if it wasn't for the, my strong belief in the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, again, I don't know about the rest of you guys, but there's got to be better things to do on a beautiful Sunday morning than, I mean, really. And it's not just me that said that. And you don't have to say amen because the Apostle Paul said it. The Apostle Paul, I think it's in 1 Corinthians, he said, if Christ be not raised, we of all people are most to be pitied. What are you doing here? Why do we do this? Why would anybody in their right mind come together and sing songs to a dead person? Why would you do that? It's dumb. But our captain, our king, the founder of our faith, the pathfinder, Jesus, he makes a way for us to have an eternal relationship with the living God. Why? Because he defeated death by doing the most amazing thing. You know how he defeated death? He didn't talk about it. <laughs> he didn't raise money against it. He didn't have a campaign against it. You know what he did? He died. And then he went into death, and he grabbed death by the throat, shook it, and then came back out. That's in Colossians. You can look that up too. It's in Colossians. He made a spectacle of death so that we do not have to fear it anymore. So Jesus has made a way for us to have a relationship with the living God. Finally, the parallel. <laughs> Finally, the parallel with 2 Samuel is here. Since therefore the children share in that flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. We just talked about that. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And here's where I really want to um, focus this sermon. Here is where I really want to talk about why it is that Jesus is the true king of his people. Because Saul was taller than everybody. He's probably stronger than everybody. He probably, in fact, we know that his armor was amazing. It was so great that David couldn't even, I don't even think David could pick up his shield. I don't remember the story that well, but he, in his sword, he, you know, he tried to put this stuff on it. Saul was amazing. He was good for almost all of the things that, that, that 
human leaders and strong, powerful people are good for. You know, if you've got a little problem with the Amalekites, Saul's your man. He can take those Amalekites out. Um, if you've got a problem, all those little things. What Saul could not do is maintain a relationship with the living God. And here's the problem with Saul. Because he could not do that, in the end, he failed. He got to the end of his strength. Because some of you know this better than I do, but I'm, I'm learning it. <laughs> I, I'm learning it. In this world, we come to a peak of our strength. And then it starts to dissipate. Richard, dissipate means it gets less. <laughs> Every one of us, regardless of how much strength we start out with, no matter how much power we start out with, there comes a time when that peak, you hit that peak, and then it gets less. Unfortunately, most of us, our mental acuity stays the same, so we are more painfully aware of how less it gets. It's very awkward. I'm not enjoying it. More to the point, every single one of us lives this life, some of us more aware than others, that the end is the same for all of God's creatures. Everything that is born must die. And what, he, what the writer of Hebrews, Mr. Anonymous, says is that all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The dynamic is this. We have false gods, we have idols, and those idols and false gods serve for most of us one purpose. And that is to either distract us or delude us or convince us, persuade us that our ultimate end is not death. You know, this is why Hollywood makes so much money because you can sit in the theater and it's dark and it's cool and you got your popcorn and you can just pretend that Star Wars is real. You can pretend that the Marvel Super... And you can live in another universe. But when you walk out of the theater, the world we live in is this one where people grow older and they are beset with Alzheimer's or dementia. People get diseases. People have accidents. I mean... So false kings try to distract us, give us something else to do. Let's just, let's just go have fun on the weekend. Let's just you know, get wasted and we don't have to think about it. Let's, uh, let's do something else. The true king, our king, did something about death. And this is why Jesus is worthy of our praise. This is why we gather here. This is why we call ourselves Christians because what this king did is he won a battle for us that we could not win ourselves. None of us, not one of us, can defeat death. It's just as sure, it's even more certain than taxes. It is coming. Our Lord, however, our hope is that he has done that which is impossible for anyone and everyone else. Either we believe that Jesus has died to conquer death, to do what it says here. Either we believe that and we live in that hope, even though there are times, and I'm not saying that by living in that hope we can somehow be rosy about it. We can somehow be, sorry Rose, somehow that we can be uh, um, giddy. I'm not talking about giddiness. What I'm talking about is a deep-seated confidence that our King, that our Lord has removed the fear that makes us slaves. Why? 
do we continue to live in slavery to the fear of death? Why do we keep pursuing those things that would somehow try to persuade us that this is not the terminus of life on this planet? Our hope is not to escape this. Our hope is to go through that to see him who has conquered death. Amen? That, that is where Jesus is in 2 Samuel chapter 5. Because he, like David, has won an impossible battle. So again, the focus I want you to take away from this this morning is that our Lord, our King, the true King of God's people is the only one who could defeat our primary foe, our greatest enemy, the greatest enemy of humans on this planet, the enemy that drives us to do the craziest things is death. And the power of death is held by the devil because we gave it to him in the garden. You know, there's a whole story about that. That's another day. But the basic idea is we have delivered over to him the dominion that God gave us. And now, if you are not, you know people who are living as slaves from fear of the end because they believe, and sometimes we believe, that it is the end. But I'm here to tell you with all confidence that Jesus Christ has gone into death, shook it, and come out. So that death is not the end. It is not the end. One last thing. Bonus. This is extra credit. So just in case you're not one of us who are, you know, seeing our strength dissipate and who are, you know, getting close to thinking about the end. If you're one of the young people, you know, just starting out, like, Doug, this is a downer, dude. I just got married. I got a whole life ahead of me here. What are you talking about? I got you. Here's the next thing just for you. Just for you, Andy. Here you go. All right. Chapter uh, 2, verse 18, the last verse is, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So maybe this morning, your temptation is not to be morose like me and think, wow, we're all going to (laughs) die. Okay, maybe not. But there's some like that. I mean, there are days when you got to, you know, you're just going to have to face up. But if it's not, if your temptation is something else, your temptation could be, um, what's that? Well, it could be to run away. But your temptation could be pride. I mean, I'm sure Andy's feeling it right now. It's like, I mean, look at this wife of mine. I mean, it's like, and to get puffed up and get all, you know. Your temptation could be pride. I mean, your temptation, I mean, there's all kinds of temptations that we face in this world. And our Lord has faced them all. He has faced every temptation that we have faced, and he has not, and he did not sin. And so he was able, he was um, made perfect, Hebrews says, to take our place and to go in and take out. So whatever that temptation is, Whatever it is um, that you are feeling, whatever, whatever obstacle that you're facing, whatever temptation that is, is seeping into your mind and into your heart, the Lord, our King, has faced it. Why? Because he became one of us. He didn't sit up there just looking down and shaking his head. Kids these days. <laughs> he did not. He did not. He came down and he walked those dusty roads. He had those long nights. He put up with people who were just clueless. He put up with, well, you should read the Gospels. He did that in order to identify with us, in order to become one of us, to be the true king of his people. So, I'll leave you with this. What is it? What is it that is tempting you or troubling you today. I mean, the whole point of getting together is to encourage one another, to point one another to the living God, to the, to the only place where we can find refuge in this wacky world, 
So my question for you is, what is it? And it's a rhetorical question. You have to raise your hand. <laughs> what is it? Where are you? What is it that has you doubting the living God? What is it that's so overwhelming that you are looking to a false God, an idol, for solace, for comfort? You know, where are you, where are you trying to find a distraction so you don't have to think about whatever that thing is? What is it that's got you in its grips because you're afraid of something, whether it's death or whether it's the future, whether it's um, immigrants, whatever it is that's got you afraid. Whatever that is this morning, the message is clear. We have a true king. We have one who has identified with us. We have one who has, who's led us in and are let us out and brought us in. We have a shepherd. We have one who has conquered death, the greatest fear of all. Let's pray.